0: Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This evening we're continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. and The Sermon on the Mount, as you would expect, is, was a sermon which Jesus taught and preached to many of the multitudes who followed him. And as we said before, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to teach those who have entered into the Kingdom of Heaven through faith and repentance. It was to teach us how to live as citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven. And we do that by emulating and mirroring our lives on the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, our King, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount (coughs) is that through faith and repentance we are to live as a restored, renewed and redeemed people. As we said time and time again, the theme and thrust of this sermon on the mount is Christ-centred living for Christ-centred lives. Christ-centred living for Christ-centred lives. And when we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Jesus opened with Beatitudes. And we said that these nine Beatitudes from verses 3 down to the verse marked 12, they, they reveal nine marks of Christian character and conduct, which is to be present in the lives of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, those who are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are to possess the marks of humility and hatred for our sin, We're to possess the mark of meekness. Possess the mark of hunger and thirst for more and more righteousness. We're to show mercy because we have received mercy. We're to be pure in heart. We're to be peacemakers. We're to rejoice and be glad even when we are persecuted. And in these Beatitudes, in the opening verses of chapter 5, Jesus sets before us the marks of Christian character and conduct. But as we proceed to look at this challenging sermon, Jesus wants to illustrate to us as to how these marks of Christian character and conduct are to be exemplified in our lives. And in this paragraph that we just read, Jesus presents to us the illustrations of salt and light. And one of the great features of the Sermon on the Mount which Jesus preached and also many of the parables which Jesus told. One of the great abilities Jesus had as a preacher was his ability to use ordinary, everyday objects and incorporate them into his sermons or his parables. Because Jesus had the unique ability to capture our attention and captivate our imagination through sermon illustrations. And we may ask what makes a good sermon illustration? Well in the case of the sermon illustrations of salt and light. Jesus uses illustrations which are applicable. Not only to his day and to his people. But they are also applicable to every century. And to every person. Because everyone is aware of the common and necessary commodity of salt. And everyone has the common need of Light to light their home. And so we can't live without light and we can't live without salt. But the question that Jesus is challenging us with by using these two salmon illustrations is what is your Christianity really like? That's what he's asking us. What is your Christianity really like? And what Jesus is saying in his sermon illustrations is that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, our Christianity is to resemble salt, and our Christianity is to resemble light. And so what I'd like us to do is to consider these two great sermon illustrations presented in the Sermon on the Mount. But this evening I would like us only to to look at the first illustration, salt. And God willing we'll consider the second illustration of life next time. Because there are two great illustrations that Jesus uses. And I don't think we should quickly skip over them. Because they're so important. And they have a lot to teach us. So this evening we'll look at the first illustration that Jesus has of salt. And I'd like us to highlight three features that I believe Jesus is presenting to us in these... In this statement, and they are three features of preservation, promise, and purity. Preservation, promise, and purity. So we'll look first at preservation. We'll just read verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And as you know, salt was one of the most common preservatives in the ancient world and also for many centuries thereafter. And you could say that salt was a precious commodity and a very (coughs) useful commodity especially in Israel which was based near the Mediterranean and a place where it's got a really hot temperature, largely a tropical temperature and so in such a hot climate salt would often be used to keep food from corruption and food from going bad and becoming rotten. And this was often the case in the ancient world and also here that when they didn't have fridges or freezers, they would salt, meat and fish in order to preserve it and to some extent we still use that method today obviously not to the same extent but some people like to salt their mackerel and salt their herring in order to preserve it and from going off sooner than it would if it wasn't salted and that's the emphasis that Jesus is trying to make with this illustration because he, he's saying that our Christianity is to have this preserving nature to it it's to have a preserving influence upon the rest of society. And what Jesus wants us to see is that the presence of a faithful Christian witness in an ungodly society is to have a preserving effect in which it prevents further corruption and rottenness. And we know that there is so much sin and corruption in our nation today. And of course there's nothing new but there seems to be this rotting away of society and the deterioration of the standards of Christian principles that without the preserving effect of Christians in society, society will continue to deteriorate at a rapid pace. And Jesus is emphatically saying to all those who are part of the kingdom of heaven by faith and repentance, he says you are the salt of the earth. And the emphasis is upon the Christian. You are the salt of the earth. Not the world, but you. You are to be and you are to have this preserving influence upon all those around you. But for Christians to have a preserving influence upon the world and in society, for Christians to be effective salt, there must be contact with the world and with society because when it it comes to preserving meat for salt to be effective the salt needs to be applied the salt needs to be rubbed into the meat and there has to be this real close contact for salt to have any preserving effect upon the meat And in the same manner Jesus is telling us that we as the salt of the earth are to be rubbing shoulders with the world. And we're to do so not only in the workplace and in our homes but also in our community and in our congregation. Because in order for salt to be used to its full capacity we need to be incorporating our Christianity into our community, into our island by getting involved in it. Because the church is not to be isolated from the world. And the church and Christianity is not to withdraw itself from society to some form of Protestant monastery or nunnery. And some people think that the only way by avoiding being com- contaminated as a Christian is to avoid everything and stay away from everything now while saying that we have to be careful not to rub too closely to the world in order to avoid compromise and succumbing to the pressures of the world and there's this very fine balance it's a very difficult line but in order for Christianity to have this restraining influence we cannot afford to be isolated but we must be separated and I've probably said this to you before, and I'm sure that I'll say it to you again. That what I read years ago, when I was first converted, has stuck with me ever since. Separation is not isolation. It's contact without contamination. Separation is not isolation. It's contact without contamination. And that's why I believe Jesus is telling us, as those who are at the salt of the earth, there must be contact Without contamination, and this must be clearly seen in our, our families, our workplace, and amongst our community and our friends, where there must be this restraining influence against the decaying effects of sin. And sometimes we can see it in our workplace when there are there are some people who withhold using bad language because you're present and uh-huh. they know that you're a Christian and they do so because they respect you and they respect Christianity and they respect the church but in the other people, on the other hand some people have the opposite approach and they use bad language in spite of you. and in those situations depending upon their personality and who they are and what they're like you can either challenge them or leave them to it and you know sometimes the workplace can be one of the hardest places to be as a Christian Where you can come up against challenges that will try and make you compromise your faith and the standards of scripture. Or there will be people who will confront you in order to try and make you stumble and question what it is you actually believe. And sometimes these challenges, they're good for us. They're not easy. But no one ever said that being a Christian was easy. For is being a Christian not all about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus daily? And the workplace can certainly be a challenging place to be as a Christian. But so can our own homes, where there's an unconverted spouse and the constant difficulty with conflicting views, even when children are involved and there can be challenges amongst our friends and amongst our neighbours but in all these different relationships within our lives and with so many challenges and confrontations Jesus is emphasising that we are to be the salt in those places and I believe that the key to being a constant supply of salt to every area of our lives is consistency there has to be consistency consistency in our witness as Christians because sometimes it is a consistent witness that speaks far louder than any conversation about the gospel and consistency means that there can't be a double mindedness in our witness for a person who is double minded a person who who can't decide to go one way or the other When confronted between the values of the world and the values of the Christian. Where their allegiance is divided with the world on one side and Christ on the other. That person, says James in his letter, that person is unstable in all their ways. For a double-minded man or woman will be inconsistent and unstable in all their ways. And so there is this need as Christians to remain Consistent in our witness, we're not to compromise. We're not to give in to the constant temptation to follow the world, because the moment we do, says Jesus, the salt will begin to lose its savour. And you know, one of the greatest biblical examples of salt, in which there was no compromise, but this consistency in the life of a believer. I believe, was in the life of Daniel. Because as you know, Daniel was a man who lived in a foreign land amongst the secular society of the Babylonians who worshipped all these false gods. And yet he had an influence for good. He had a preserving effect upon the people of Babylon in which he not only had an influence upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar, with regard to the diet of his men, but Daniel never once compromised his worship of God for the sake of the kingdom of Babylon. And his influence was such that he he was raised right up to the position of the prime minister in the kingdom of Babylon. And yet, there was still this consistent witness. And that should make us realise that we need to pray for those in positions of our government. uh, That they would have an influence for good in our nation. Just looking at Daniel, it makes us realise well there are Christians in Parliament. And we ought to pray that the Lord would raise up more to stand for the truth in our day of <coughs> revelation. We ought to pray for more of a salty influence in our governments, both in Westminster and Hollywood, and even here in our local council. But what always stood out for me with Daniel, and in the life of Daniel, it wasn't the lion's den. But the night Belshazzar held that great feast. Because you'll remember that Belshazzar held a feast and he he invited all the officials of the kingdom to come and get drunk with him. And there was this great party in Babylon. They were all drinking from the goblets which had been taken out from the temple in Jerusalem. But the question I've always asked when reading the scene in Daniel 5 is, where was Daniel? Where was Daniel when all that was going on? Because all the officials were there. And with Daniel acting as Prime Minister in the land. You would have expected him to be at Belshazzar's feast. With all of the other guests. <coughs> but he wasn't. Daniel was nowhere to be seen. And it was only when the writing on the wall finally appeared. And God spoke in judgement. And the party was coming to a halt And God was then the topic of conversation. It was then that Daniel was summoned to come. Daniel wasn't at the party, but when God decided to speak, Belshazzar knew exactly where to go and who to find and who to ask about his predicament. Belshazzar knew that Daniel was different from everyone else. And that scene of Belshazzar's feast, always always made me think that The Christian is a far better witness by not being at the feasts and the parties of the world than being there and trying to witness to people. Because it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible to to witness to those who are in their parties and getting drunk. And I think there's one thing about salt. And you can see it so clearly in the life of Daniel salt works quietly and it works consistently without compromise dare to be a Daniel dare to stand alone dare to have a purpose for him, dare to make it known preservation preservation that's the first thing But secondly, we see promise. Promise. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And as we said, the purpose of Jesus' metaphor of salt is to to illustrate that we're to preserve the world from further corruption. But at no point does Jesus express that The purpose of salt is to save the world from corruption For just like meat The decaying and rotting effect of meat It can't, it can't be stopped by adding salt It can certainly be reduced and slowed down But it can't be stopped And we often use the term curing When we are speaking of, about preserving meat We cure it But even as the salt of the earth we cannot cure all the ills of society, but when you think about it, isolating this illustrated illustration of Jesus about salt to this preserving function doesn't seem like an adequate explanation of his metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount, because as we know, the Sermon on the Mount is all about how we ought to live as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. but the emphasis of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven wasn't just to, t- to make the world a better place or a not so bad place having faithful citizens that belong to the kingdom of heaven all witnessing in the world because for Jesus the arrival of the kingdom of heaven it marked the beginning of the rescue mission to redeem sinners from the power of the kingdom of darkness and translate them into the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven but not only that The reference to salt and those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, who are being referred to here as the salt of the earth, it reveals this connection that there is to and the fulfilment that was promised in the Old Testament. Because when a grain offering was made to the Lord, which we are reading about in Leviticus 2, it was offered with salt. That's what we read in Leviticus 2 at verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And this is what I found really interesting when studying this today. That the Lord commanded his people and when they make an offering to the Lord it must be (coughs) offered with salt. For the Lord said, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And this phrase, the salt of the covenant, it's repeated again in Numbers chapter 18 and also in 2nd Chronicles 13. And the reason why the Lord repeats the term salt of the covenant why he repeated, the reason why he repeated throughout the history of the people of Israel was to emphasise the permanent nature of the covenant. For as we said before, we've said it a number of times, that the Bible is held together by this covenantal framework. There's this thread of covenant that runs all the way through the Bible and it binds it all together where there are all these repeated covenants the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and then what we were singing about in Psalm 89 the covenant made with David and so the salt of the covenant was not only to be seen as this preservative but also a symbol of permanence it was a symbol of this perpetual and everlasting promise and that promise referred to the coming messiah where God made a covenant of salt with David and promised that the seed of David would one day sit upon the throne of David. And that's what the Lord says in 2 Chronicles 13. The Lord God of Israel gave the kingship of Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. And we know that this covenant was a covenant of salt. It was a perpetual and everlasting promise and we know that this covenant didn't become null and void because despite the repeated faithlessness of the children of Israel, despite their failure to uphold the covenant despite their lack of zeal and distinction between them and all the other nations of the world despite their destruction and their exile away to Babylon, despite their lack of saltiness the Lord remained faithful to the covenant of salt. For the permanent nature of this covenant of salt was such that God said that a king was promised to come in his kingdom. And when that king finally appeared, he arrived as the descendant of the house of David and he was the covenant salt, you could say, in person. Jesus Christ. And so in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus refers to the salt of the earth, he's not only highlighting this preserving aspect of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, but he's also emphasising a promise which belonged to the kingdom of heaven. And it's now a promise which belongs to all those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Because the nature of the covenant of salt is that it's everlasting. It's Perpetual, It's binding. It's unchanging. <coughs> Which means that all those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. By faith and repentance. Are of course the covenant people of God. But more than that. More than that. Because this covenant promise is showing us that. As the world was preserved until the Messiah finally came. So also the earth will be preserved, as William Cowper put it, until all the ransomed Church of God are saved to sin no more. Because this covenant of salt Mm -hmm. assures us that the world will continue as long as we are in it. For as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and the salt of the earth, we have this preserving effect, in the sense that the gospel will continue. Until the end of the world. And because the gospel will continue. The opportunity to call sinners to repentance and faith in this king. The opportunity to call more and more to come and inherit this glorious kingdom. Is promised that it will, it will be preserved until the king comes again in the power of his kingdom. But the salt which is used. Which it will just be mentioned here that it will be preserved until the day of judgment. We will be preserved in that sense until the day of judgment. And whilst there is still opportunity, whilst we are still on mercy's ground, whilst the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation, to them that believe, it must be continually presented to the world and you, says Jesus you are the salt of the earth and you are to do it you are to do it promise promise, so we've seen preservation promise, and lastly this evening we see purity purity Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So as well as salt having to be applied to the world by rubbing shoulders with it, and being given the promise of an opportunity to do so, salt must also be kept pure otherwise warns Jesus the salt will lose its saltiness now salt as we know it and as we have it in our homes and in our cupboards it will never lose its saltiness because it's pure salt where it's been processed and purified and all the impurities have been removed from it but the salt which was used in first century Palestine was very impure and it often deteriorated after a while And when that happened, the salt would lose its taste and it would lack saltiness, and the salt would lose its flavor because of all of the impurities. And when that happens, says Jesus, when salt loses its savour, how can you make it salty again? How can you restore its saltiness? How can you make impure salt that has deteriorated? How can you make it pure again? And Jesus says, you can't. Because salt that has lost its saltiness is good for nothing. It's useless. It's useless. The only thing that it's worth being used for is to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's useless. And what Jesus is bluntly saying to us is that if we're indistinguishable from the world, our Christian witness is as good as useless. Because if we cease to be salty, we lose our distinctiveness. A distinctiveness which Jesus has already outlined in all these Beatitudes. And if we lack any flavour in our Christianity, then we are failing to live as Christians should. My friend, our Christian witness becomes ineffective when we don't live consistently as a Christian should. For according to Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that the witness of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a witness that is compromised or inconsistent, is useless. It's useless. If we're not living a pure, salty life, then it's useless. It's good for nothing. Because if we lose our distinctiveness as a Christian, we become ineffective and our witness is useless. It's good for nothing. And if we become assimilated to the world and to non-Christians in what we do and where we go and how we speak, and if we become contaminated by all the impurities of the world, we will lose our influence upon them. And upon those around us, and we lose any hope of trying to invite them into the kingdom of heaven, and all our efforts will become useless. Because if we become so like them that there is no longer any distinction between the world and the Christian, our purpose as those in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is stressing, is useless it's useless, no effect and it was in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasised the distinction which needs to be present between the world and the Christian there needs to be this distinction he says he said the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world she invariably attracts it It is then that the world is made to listen to her message though it may hate it at first. I'll read that again because it's so so important what he's saying. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world she invariably attracts it. It's then that the world is made to listen to her message though it may hate it at first. And what Marlowe Jones was saying Only 50 years ago is something we so desperately need to hear today. Because as a church and as a denomination, we are living far too close to the world. Where the Christian is in the world and the world is in the Christian. And somehow we've come to think that by being as close to the world as possible, we will draw them into the church. Somehow we've come to think that if the church becomes so like the world, and it loses its distinction and makes the church as similar to their lifestyle and how they live, then it won't be too much of a jump for them when they want to become a Christian. There won't be too big a step for them. But when is the call to a life of holiness a little jump? When is the call to a Christ-centered life ever a little step? Where is the little step in Jesus' statement, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Where's the little step? My friend, it, it doesn't matter how many changes we make and how many similarities we bring and how many barriers we pull down if it's not Christ that draws them into the church. It's not Christ that will keep them in the church. And what we need to realize is that there needs to be a distinction. That's what Jesus is saying to us. There needs to be a distinction. Because it was once said, the church and the world are like water and a boat. It's right for the boat to be in the water. But the trouble comes when the water gets into the boat. My friend, our Christian witness is something which is precious. It ought to be protected. And we're in a grave danger when we are starting to take on water and beginning to sink. Because if we lose our distinctiveness as a Christian, we become ineffective. And our witness is useless. But our Christian witness is not only what we do and where we go, it's also what we say. Because I'm sure that most of us can say, or at least should say, as those who are in the kingdom of heaven, we should be able to say, I don't go to the pubs, I don't go to the clubs, I'm not at all the parties, I avoid all these places that I used to frequent when I wasn't in the kingdom of heaven. And we can say that we have managed to to tame our bodies in a sense. But like many of us, we've found it harder to tame our tongue. (coughs) But hard as it may be, a distinct feature of our Christian lives ought to be our speech. And as the salt of the earth, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is our Conversation like. It was the Apostle Paul who exhorted the church in Colossae. He said, Consider your speech. He says, Let your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer each person. And what Paul is reminding us is that. Not only our conduct and character ought to be salty, but even our conversation ought to be full of grace and seasoned with salt. My friend, we are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be distinct, we are to be different, we are to be separate. But separation is not isolation. Contact without contamination. (coughs) As one commentator put it, the salty disciple will be distinctive in their lifestyle and so demonstrate their allegiance to their king and display their convictions to others. So we've considered Jesus' first illustration of salt. Preservation, promise, and purity. We are the salt of the earth, and As the salt of the earth we will have a preserving purpose, we possess a key promise, and we will progress in a life of purity, all because we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we might show forth the praises of him who hath called us from darkness into his marvellous light. Which brings us to the second illustration of Jesus. Which God willing will look at next time as we continue our study in the sermon. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord our gracious God. When thou art one who speaks, Lord, we realize how far short we come. But we thank and praise thee that we are kept each and every day by thee. And we ask, Lord, that thou just continue to teach us. Be our teacher, Lord, in this great school. And help us, Lord, to be pupils that are attentive, pupils that are teachable, pupils, Lord, that are willing to learn, to learn to be more like our master, to learn to be imitators of Christ, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and to have fellowship with one another knowing that the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. O Lord, keep us then, we pray. Look upon us in mercy. Draw near to us and encourage us. That thou wouldst be pleased to bless us. Remember our homes and our families. Remember those, Lord, who are not with us tonight. That thou wouldst encourage them. Remember those who had no desire to come. That thou wouldst draw them to thyself. Draw them to the king of the kingdom of heaven, that they may truly taste and see that thou art good, and trust in thee and be blessed. Keep us and go before us for Jesus' sake. Amen. <coughs> I conclude by singing in Psalm one hundred and nineteen. Psalm one hundred and nineteen. It's page four zero two the Scottish Psalter <coughs> Psalm 119, from verse 33 down to the verse mark 37. Teach me, O Lord, the perfect way of thine precepts divine, and to observe it to the end I shall my heart incline. Give understanding unto me, so keep thy law shall I, yet even with my whole heart I shall observe it carefully. In Thy law's path, make me to go; for I delight therein. My heart unto Thy testimonies, and not to greed entwined. Turn thou away my sight and dimes from viewing vanity, and in Thy good and holy way, be pleased to quicken me. To sing these verses of Psalm 119, teach me, O Lord, the perfect way of Thy precepts divine. To God's praise. Teach me,
1: oh. No. no.